Well, here we go again. My wife and I are happily here again after the third year. Is this the third year we've gone to this conference, honey? Fourth year, fourth year. It took us longer to get uh, here than any time before. We got 13 miles away from the church, and then we hit a traffic jam that lasted an hour and 45 minutes. Otherwise, we were making pretty good progress. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, anoint my lips now so that I might teach you the word of God to the people of God so that they might share it with people who need to know about the word of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, in the past, some of you remember I was a, introduced as a university te- teacher, was I not? Not if, you, if I was. Well, what? In the past, I decided, or I, it was decided for me this last semester that I would not teach. Uh, we had a class scheduled for two in the afternoon, and college students don't want to go to class at two in the afternoon until 3.30. So I had an insignificant number of students sign up. So the boss said to me, don't bother coming in this semester. Just save your energy, save your strength. I said, okay, so Young and I spent most of this uh, last semester going to doctors, making doctor's appointments. So they say that uh, at our age now, if you have a little black book, all of the names in the little black book end in MD, and uh, I think that's, that's true. When I teach at the university, I teach literature, I teach stories, I teach poetry, I teach drama. And when we go through the stories, I try and make a connection between what the students know and what the students don't know. And there is this marvelous story written by John Steinbeck, and some of you may have heard of him, a California author, during the Depression times. It's called Chrysanthemums and I struggled to pronounce that correctly, but chrysanthemums are a beautiful, normally yellow flower. I think there's white mums as well, but I think most of the time they're yellow. And so here we have a story opening. The opening scene of the story is usually very important to the story. We have an opening scene where the man of the house is over at the corral negotiating with some buyers to sell some of his cattle. We have the wife in the garden tending her chrysanthemums, and they look wonderful. They look marvelous or beautiful. They're her pride and joy. And, of course, the garden is fenced in, and she has two German shepherds that guard her in the garden. That's the opening scene. And I say to my students, have you ever seen that scenario before? Have you ever seen those components? What do you expect to happen as a new character is introduced into the story? And they look at me with kind of a blank stare and absolutely no response. And I say, okay, let's go to the next paragraph. And lo and behold, here comes a man dressed in black, driving a, uh, a 
wagon, a covered wagon. He is a tinker. And I don't know whether you ever remember the word tinker, but a tinker is a person that goes around and fixes pots and pans. Is it too loud? Okay, it's good. A tinker is someone that fixes pots and pans. And uh, he's all dressed in black, and he's got a very interesting team of horses, but they're not horses. There's one horse and one donkey pulling his wagon. And that's the opening scene of the, the uh, story. Do you think, based on your biblical knowledge, that this man is a good guy or a bad guy? What? Okay, when you make comments, you're going to have to talk louder because my hearing aids don't pick up too much. Uh, he's a poor man. Yeah, uh, usually uh, the bad guys wear black in stories, so we think he was a bad guy. But he was also poor because he he had his rates for his his uh, tinkering on the side of the uh, the wagon, and they were very he was very inexpensive to use. But he was always after a dollar. So I say to them, have you ever heard of this story before? Have you ever seen the picture of this before where there's a walled-in garden and there's only one gate and there's two uh, animals guarding this gate and there's a woman and there's a man? And they look at me again and they say, we've never heard of such a story. And that gave me pause when I first encountered that because one of the fundamental stories that we engage with as Christians and Bible students and Bible believers is the, Gar the Garden of Eden story. And I thought back over the years and I couldn't remember anyone, any sermon I heard or preached on the Garden of Eden. And many uh, scholars now or uh, Bible critics relegate it to myth and illusion and just legendary uh, sources, and they kind of dismiss it as not being a real place. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the Garden of Eden this morning, why it's important, who the characters are, what the influences are, and whether or not, and this is important to consider, whether or not the Garden of Eden persists down through biblical history. Whether or not it persists during the, uh, down through biblical history. Now you and I know from our Bible reading and Bible studies that the Lord planted the garden, and he took the man and the woman and put them in the garden supposedly to keep it and to tend it. And many times I will have a Sunday school class and I will ask them, take out a crayon or a pen or a pencil and paper uh, and draw me a picture of the garden. What do you think the Garden of Eden looked like? And lo and behold, usually what comes up is a vegetable garden. And there's Adam and with his hoe and there's Eve and they look amazingly like an American couple tending a vegetable garden. 
But I would suggest to you and present to you and offer to you the idea that that is not what the Garden of Eden looked like. Let's look at the location of the Garden of Eden. The location of the Garden of Eden is fairly specific in the Bible. We know that it is located somewhere in the vicinity of the Tigris or the Euphrates River. You have that on the map uh, here in front of you. The Tigris or the Euphrates River, we know where they are at. They're in the Middle East. They're in the vicinity of Iraq. And then we have the other one, which is the Gihon, and that was normally considered uh, to be the Nile River, around the area of the Nile uh, Rapids, and you see on the map one, two, three, four, five, six sets of rapids in the Nile River. And interestingly enough, the Nile River was thought to connect to the Sea of Galilee. How do we know that? Because there was a peculiar kind of catfish that lives only in the Nile River and in the Sea of Galilee. So there was, must at one time in history have been a connection between the two bodies of water. There might still be a connection in an underground river or an underground stream. We don't know that for sure. Now, the interesting thing to me is this Gihon River. Why is it interesting to me? It's because that there is a spring in Jerusalem called the Gihon. Where did we get the idea that the spring should be named Gihon if it wasn't connected to the Gihon River? And it says here in 1 Kings 1, 38 and 39, So Zadok, the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to the Gihon. Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. The spring in Jerusalem where the Gihon, called the Gihon Spring, is where the kings were anointed as kings. This is very vital in Hebrew and Israelite history, and I think there's a connection. We'll talk about this later. Do you ever have a song that goes through your head and sticks in your mind? Mark, do you ever have a song? What's your latest song that's stuck in your head? Uh, in Christ Alone. In Christ Alone. Yeah, I love that song. Well, I had one stick in my head the other day, and uh, I didn't know where it came from, but it said, the lyrics said, we got to get back to the garden. And we live in this day of technology. Oh, I love this day of technology when the te technology works. And so I went to YouTube and entered in, you got to get back to the garden. We got to get ourselves back to the garden. And here's the lyrics of the song. It says, we are stardust, we are golden, we are caught in the devil's bargain, and we got to get ourselves back to the garden. Man wants to go back to the garden-like conditions. I suspect strongly that the whole ecology movement is based on the idea of getting back to a garden-like environment 
in our culture and in our world. I think that the society, and you study history carefully, you find that every major culture wants to get back to the garden. They call it the golden age. Every culture has had a golden age. We've got to get ourselves back to the garden. The question is, can we get ourselves back to the garden? Let's look at it. The Garden of Eden is important. The reason why the Garden of Eden is important is because this is where the idea of an earthly kingdom began. Remember that the Garden of Eden is not the same thing as the whole earth. The Garden of Eden is not the whole earth. The Garden of Eden was the first archetype temple, the prototype of all temples. You and I see temples as we go down through uh, the Bible, one after another. First, we have the temple in the Garden of Eden. How do we know it was a temple? Because Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and the presence of the Lord is a technical term that means a temple. Jonah, when he fled, he fled from the presence of the Lord. He left Jerusalem and went down to Joppa to get a boat. So we have a temple there. Then what, where's the next place we have a temple? We have the same layout, the same physical layout in the wilderness experience of Israel. The tabernacle now becomes the garden, the garden in the midst of a wilderness. Then we move on down to the temple of Solomon, the first temple. And Solomon is a reenactment of the garden. And then we have the temple destroyed and it's rebuilt again. And then we have Jesus standing in front of the temple and saying, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And of course they accused him of blasphemy because of that. But the fact of the matter was that he was talking of not about the physical temple, not about Herod's temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. So here we have the temple in the garden. We have the temple in the tabernacle. We have the temple in the temple. We have the temple in the rebuilt temple. And then we have the temple in the physical body of Jesus. You see how the scripture is drawing analogy after analogy as we go through the scripture? And then the Apostle Paul looks at Christians individually and collectively and says, you all are the temple of the living God. Why? Because you have the glory of God inside of you. And that's why we can move from glory to glory, because we have the glory of God inside of us And God is in the process of moving the glory outside of us, which will happen when we get our resurrection bodies. And then we get, last but not least, to the New Jerusalem, which is shaped almost exactly like the Holy of Holies. The dimensions of the New Jerusalem have height, width, and depth equal, just like the Holy of Holies was. So God is moving us through the Scripture in the, using this prototype of the temple in the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden was the first place where man worshipped God, the first king priest of the world, Adam, worshipped God there. And thanks to Brother Mark here, I have to acknowledge him, 
couple years ago, we were talking about theology, I think it was when we stayed with Mark and Diane, and he said, did you ever think that the divine council met in the Garden of Eden? And I said, no, I never thought about that. And then a couple years later, or a couple months later, I can't keep track of the time anymore, Dr. Michael Heiser, which most of us know about, comes out and says, the divine council met in the Garden of Eden. But Mark thought of it first, so I want to give him the uh, acknowledgement here. Notice the plural in Genesis 1.26. God says, let us, let us make man in our own image. Traditionally, that was thought to be a reference to the Trinity, but that is no longer feasible and no longer possible with the research that's been done. God is in the midst of talking to surrounding beings that always accompany him when he appears in the Scripture. The Garden of Eden was a, new, a unique place of God's presence. Israel's temple was the place where the high priest experienced God's presence. Genesis 4.16 says that when Cain left the garden, he went out from the presence of the Lord. The word is a technical term for the tabernacle or temple. Eden was the place where Adam walked and talked with God. The same verbal form is used in the tabernacle where the priest walks back and forth. Notice that he heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. Have you ever stopped to think about that a minute? He heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. A spirit being does not make noise when they walk. I make noise when I walk. In fact, with my shuffle step now with my Parkinson's disease, Everybody knows when I'm coming into the room. They said, oh, here comes John, because he, he makes noise when he walks. You see, we have a phenomena in the Old Testament called the embodiment of Yahweh. In other words, there are two Yahwehs in the Old Testament. There is God the Father and God the Son. They're not called God the Father and God the Son in the Old Testament. They're called Yahweh invisible and Yahweh visible. And this gives new meaning to the command, and I don't want to gross you out here, but this gives new meaning to the command in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy where it says when you're camping, when the Israelites are camping, he said if you have to go to the bathroom, you go outside the camp and you take a little entrenching tool with you and you dig yourself a hole and cover your leftovers. Why is that important? Because God, the Lord, walks in the midst of your camp. He's physically embodied. He walks in the midst of your camp, and he does not want to get defiled by that. Eden was a place where Adam talked with God, and notice the Lord walked in the garden. And let me make a sidebar comment here. How many of you know the song, In the Garden? I come to the garden alone, and the dew is on the roses, and the voice I hear sounding on my ear, Son of God, because And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I'm his own. That is a beautiful song. I love the song. The point is, when the Lord was walking in the garden in the text of Scripture, it's got nothing to do with fellowship 
It's got everything to do with judgment. Right after the man and the woman sinned, they heard the sound of the Lord marching in the garden, coming to judge them, and they hid in the bushes. So even though it's a great song, don't take it out of the context in which it was given. Now, let me correct some ideas here. It's not a vegetable garden. Genesis 2.15 says he put the man there to cultivate it and to keep it. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, the words are to serve and to guard, used of serving guard or guarding his word. The priests were interested or charged with the task of serving God and guarding his word. And that is exactly what Adam was supposed to do. God stationed the cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life. The garden was the place of the first guarding cherubim, Genesis 3-4. This was after Adam was relieved of duty for failing to guard the bride. You see, we have a prototype going there, not only with the tabernacle and the temple. We have Adam as the first Adam, later to be replaced by the second Adam, and Eve as the first bride, to be replaced by the bride of Christ in the New Testament. Now, let me dazzle, dazzle you with fancy footwork up here. There is a chiastic formula or format in chapter 3, the story of the servant. Now, how many of you know what a chi, a chi is? A chi is the Greek letter X. And as you notice, it forms two arrows, one on the left side and one on the right side. Now, if I want to organize the text, I will follow the outermost point of my finger into the turning point, and then I will follow it out the other way. And it comes out A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and back again, G, F, E, D, C, B, A. The X marks the spot. The X is the most important part of the, the, the passage, the X, X is the turning point, and it's helpful for us to know that in this particular case. The start of the limb, the start of the chiasm up here on the, this point, going this way and then this way. The A has the nakash, that was the Hebrew name, the serpent and the man and the woman. And there's a command in that section, verses 1 through 5, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, you say, okay, why is that important? It is important because of the parallelism in the section. Let's go to the next section. Let's go to the other A. The other A has the cherubim and the men and the woman. And the command is, don't eat from the tree of life. What am I saying there? I am saying the way the text is organized, the serpent and the cherubim are parallel. Therefore, the serpent is a cherub. So not only do you have God and his divine counsel there, you have guardian cherubs, and one of the cherubs is what we call the tempter or the serpent in the passage. Serpent in the passage is parallel to the cherubim. 
Therefore, we need to leave the idea of a talking snake behind, even though the book of Jubilee says God used Hebrew to call the universe into existence and every living creature originally spoke Hebrew. You know what that's saying? In the writer's idea, the animals used to talk, and they all spoke Hebrew. Fascinating to me, when Jesus appeared uh, from heaven to the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, he spoke in the Hebrew language. Now, let's look at Ezekiel 28. One of the things we have to notice is that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is not the only place the Garden of Eden is mentioned. Genesis, Ezekiel 28, verse 12. It's talking about a divine being. It says, you had the seal of perfection, therefore you're a divine being. Number two, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Someone was in Eden, the garden of God. Verse 13, you were covered with jewels. You were covered with jewels matching the jewels of the new Jerusalem. Now, how many of you have read that story in the book of Revelation where the living creatures are covered with eyes? Nobody ever read that? One or two people read that? The eyes are not eyes. They're facets. They're facets. The word should be translated facets. And they are angelic creatures. They are cherubim they are covered with jewelry. So in Ezekiel 28, we have the story of an angel. You know, even though the term angel is a functional name, it's not a, a, a biblical name. We have the story of this beautiful creature that was in the Garden of Eden, covered with jewels. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Now here's an interesting thing. You were on the holy mountain of God. Notice the parallelism here. You were in the Garden of Eden. You were on the mountain of God. So the two places are the same. You walk back and forth amid the fiery, cone, uh, fiery stones, the divine council. You say, how do you get that? Well, stones are people in the Scripture. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8, we have Christ as a living stone, and you all are living stones as well. So perhaps maybe in the future we can have the, the uh, first hymn of the morning, the theme from Rocky. And uh, I don't know whether Brother Ken will go along with that or not. Then Christ is the chief cornerstone. Believers are precious stones. Christ is a rejected stone. Christ is a stumbling stone. The writers of Scripture use stone terminology to make a point about things that are going on in our lives. Now, one of the things I suggested to you earlier, I'm going to draw on it before, Solomon's temple is a recreation of the Garden of Eden. Solomon's temple is a recreation of the Garden of Eden, 1 Kings 4 through 6. It has palm trees. It has cypress trees. It has cedar trees. 
It has pomegranate trees and it has almond trees. These are all trees of the garden. It has cherubim all over the place. Solomon, when he made his temple, he carved cherubim on the walls, on the ceiling, on the curtains, everywhere. He wanted to show us that when God sits on his throne, as he does, there are going to be all these cherubim surrounding his throne. It's totally lined with gold, reflecting the glory of God. And the tree of life is there. The tree of life is a good candidate to be considered as the model of the lampstand placed directly outside the Holy of Holies. The lampstand in the tabernacle and temple looked like a small flowering tree with seven protruding branches from a central trunk. Exodus 25, 31 through 36 pictures the lampstand having a flowery and fructifying appearance of a tree with bulbs and flowers, branches, and almond blossoms. The interior has carving structures and pieces of furniture covered with precious metals, wood-carved gourds and open flowers, palm trees and open flowers, pomegranates numbered 200 in a row around. And it's fascinating to me how many seeds are in a pomegranate. Six hundred and thirteen. And our Jewish brothers believe that there are six hundred and thirteen commandments in the scripture to be obeyed. You have to figure out what this symbolism means. Both capitals are the two doorway pillars on the top of which was a lily design. The bronze sea in the courtyard had two rows of gourds under its brim and was made like a lily blossom. The lily is very important. There's four psalms four psalms in the Psalter that have the title or the instruction to the lilies, to the lilies. And I did a study of that when I was in seminary. I found out that there was a mistake in the translation of the lilies. It should be translated, for those who shall yet be changed, like Paul said. And when you and I, of course, get our resurrection bodies, we're going to look like lilies. We're going to be pure white all over. That's why the lily is a resurrection flower around Easter. A river flowed out of Eden. A river flows out of the second temple, according to the letter of Aristius, 89 through 91. A river flows out of the eschatological temple in Ezekiel 47 and Revelation 21. The garden was a place of uh, of precious stones. Pure gold and bedelium and onyx stones were in the land of Avila. Various items of tabernacle furniture were covered with gold. Onyx stones decorated both the priest, uh, the temple, and the the tabernacle, as well as the clothing of the priest. The garden was on a mountain. We know that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain because water normally runs downhill. As stated above, Ezekiel pictures Eden being on the mountain. The mountain of God in Jerusalem, the mountain of Calvary in Jerusalem, were the locations of the original Garden of Eden. And recently, borrowing from a man up here at Cleveland, Tennessee, called Perry Stone, he talked to the chief rabbi in Israel 
And he said, where did Jacob see the vision of his ladder? He said, well, it says in the text that he went to Bethel, but he said there were two Bethels. One of them is located there, and one of them is located close by Jerusalem. And what did Jacob say when he saw the, the vision? He said, this is the, the house of God. At the top of the, the ladder was the gate of heaven. And as we study the scriptures, we find out that the ladder was not a carpenter's ladder or a ladder we use to change light bulbs. The, the staircase, it was a staircase. It was a winding staircase so angels could pass each other coming up and down. Why were the angels coming up and down? They were carrying prayers to heaven, and they were carrying answers back down. Israel's temple was on Mount Zion. The end-time temple will be located on a mountain. The ark in the Holy of Holies, which contained the law that led to wisdom, echoes the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that also led to wisdom. Both touching the ark and partaking of the fruit resulted in death. The garden was the first place that we have a totally eastward-facing gate. This is how we know that the garden had a wall around it, by the way. There was only one gate for the cherubim to guard. One entered the garden from the east, same for the tabernacle, same for the temple, and so for the future temple. Whenever you go east in the scripture, you're going away from the Lord. Whenever you go west, you're approaching the Lord. It's curious to me that the garden also is a three-part structure. The land of Eden was the larger part. The garden of Eden was the next largest part. And in the midst of the garden is a special place that was the holiest of holies. Outside the sacred space was the land of Nod. Now, after Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, what did the Lord do? He placed what at the gate? No one knows? May I suggest to you he placed a sword that turned every which way? Is that what someone said? Okay. Well, we know what Hollywood believes about it because Hollywood has a movie called uh, uh, Indiana Jones and the Search for the Holy Grail. And they, when they finally get to the place where the Holy Grail is, they have to walk through this place and they have to stoop over and all of a sudden a circular saw comes out and cuts the individual's heads off. That's what they thought the Bible meant with a sword that turned every which way. I would suggest to you that that is not what's going on, not just because Hollywood said it, but I looked up the words that are used to describe the sword and it's a glimmering shimmering sword. Now, if we draw, if uh, Willis would have brought his sword cane today, we could have asked him to do this. What happens when you 
take your sword and put it in the ground. What shape does it take? takes the shape of a cross. And that is what we have here on this next slide. The angel guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden. All the way back in Genesis, God was telling us that we must get by the sword of the angel in the shape of a cross to get back to the garden. The sword says to us that if you want to get back to the tree of life eternal, you have to have someone die at the gate of the garden. That's why Jesus died in a garden. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, thank you for the garden. Thank you for the things that are going on in that passage of scripture. Help us to focus on the garden and our access back to it in the coming age to come. Thank you for the attending audience we had this morning. I pray your blessing upon the rest of our conference in Jesus' name. Amen.